Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Mark Riley. And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. P is for the Philly Dogs Tour. Okay, so, uh, yeah, the Philly Dogs Tour is, in essence, the second part in a game of two halves. Or, if you like, three-thirds. All right, Mark. Let's get to it and let's discuss it. Okay, so uh, we're going to start at the start here. Diamond Dogs Tour was a concert tour by Davey Bowie in North America in 1974 to promote the studio album Diamond Dogs. As we know, halfway through the tour, Bowie became infatuated with soul music and the seeds of the soul-based Young Americans album took his attention and brought with it a largely different band for the second and third sections of the tour and the album itself, Young American. So we'll start at the start here. Two months of rehearsals were required to get the tour ready, in part due to the elaborate set and props required for the show, reported to cost $275,000 per set, or around $1,360,000 today. Wow. A lot of cash. Originally, the tour was planned to appear in a city for five nights before moving on to the next city, but that plan was abandoned pretty early on. So the tour started in June 1974 in Montreal, Canada, as a Diamond Dogs tour. Although it was Tony DeFries, he would demand man that uh, whilst talking to the press that they called it the year of the diamond dog so this branding right. you know Bowie recorded radio and tv commercials for the tour which played in advance of the tour's arrival in each city this is i mean was this common practice do you think or do you think it was all part of this very elaborate you know uh, pre-press stuff yeah, I don't know. I mean, we certainly never did it over here. But then no. again, you think of being the difference in distance uh, in America. Yeah. So you could have a campaign and it would cover the whole of America. Yeah. But over here, by comparison, it's such a tiny island. Yeah, of course. It? You get a copy of Enemy, which most of the people who were interested in music bought Enemy sounds or yeah. Melody Maker, didn't they? Yeah. So you were right on top of it. But of course. it probably wasn't the same over there. No, imagine you have to go to every radio station in every town, wouldn't you, just to plug the gig? Yeah, OK. So this is where it gets interesting. The tour took a month off in August 1975 during which time Bowie began recording his follow-up studio album to Diamond Dogs, which was Young Americans. He did. The set was designed by Mark Ravitz, who would go on to design sets for people like Kiss, Whitney Houston and the Backstreet Boys, as well as for Bowie's Glass Spider Tour in 87. And it was built to resemble a city, Hunger City. It weighed six tonnes and was incorporated over uh, 20,000 moving parts, including a variety of props like uh, street lamps, chairs and, of course, catwalks. And we never saw it, Bob. No, we, we didn't. Uh, the props themselves weren't ready for use until a six days before the show opened. That's a bit close, mm. isn't it? Uh, which led to a variety of technical problems during the tour. A movable catwalk collapsed once during the tour with Bowie on it. 
The set was at least partially based on the work by German artist George Grotz. In 1990, while getting ready for the Sound and Vision tour, Bowie recalled the difficulties faced by the show, saying it was good fun and dangerous with the equipment breaking down and the bridges falling apart on stage. I kept getting stuck out over the audience's heads on the hydraulic cherry picker after the finish of Space Oddity. Other props worked as expected for the song Big Brother. Bowie sang from inside a multi-mirrored glass asylum, emerging during the next song, Time, sitting in the palm of a giant hand. The show in Tampa, Florida, was performed without any of the stage props because the truck driver driving those components ended up in a highway ditch after being stung by a bee. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) What are the chances? In 1987, while preparing for the Glass Spider tour, which picked up theatrically where Diamond Dogs had left off, was also designed by Rabbits, as mentioned, but we recalled about the extraordinary nature of the set he used during this tour, and he said, we had four skyscrapers on stage with bridges that went backwards and forward and go up and down. The whole thing was built on a city pretext. I had dancers working with me, and it was choreographed, and a really fantastic musical event. I thoroughly enjoyed working like that. Rub it in, why don't you? Mm. So, yeah, and the story that I heard was that when they uh, moved on, as we'll yeah. find out in a moment, that the actual set itself was given over to a school. Yeah, I'd heard that. I mean, that's, oh, I wonder if it, it still exists even. I doubt it very much. So the first half of the tour is documented on the David Live album and the problems that went on during the tour. Again, we've been through, but mm. there was the drugs, which uh, was pretty extreme, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, the fact that the band were supposed to remain unseen, so people like Herbie Flowers, they weren't very happy with that. They were supposed to be hiding behind the set that's right yeah and then not being offered any extra payment for the david live album yeah and that resulted in the uh, again well documented altercation between the shop steward if you like the old hand herbie flowers yeah. who went to see david bowie bowie didn't like the fact that they were asking for more money and so he threw a chair at herbie flowers yeah. herbie flowers upped the price at that point in time and they did get paid didn't uh, they? yeah they did so anyway the biggest problem for the original lineup however was bowie falling in love with philadelphia soul music so a more sophisticated kind of soul, wasn't it? Which you see, of course, coming through in the documentary Cracked Actor. You do. Uh, the original band did the June and July stretch of the tour, then some players jumped ship for the September stretch, and then came in more backing singers. As a clue here, in this, so for the October-December run, the Philly Soul Band took over. So you've got Willie Weeks in there, Dennis Davis, who had remained with Bowie for a long, long time, and starts playing tracks from Young Americans. So, uh, you know, in the middle of all this stuff, Bowie thinks, right, I want to be a soul artist. And this is from Wikipedia. Beginning on the 11th of August, 1974, during breaks in Davy Bowie's Diamond Dogs tour, Young Americans was recorded by Tony Visconti, primarily at Sigma Sound Studios in Philadelphia. It was agreed early on to record as much of the album as possible live, with the full band playing together, including Bowie's vocals, as a single continuous take for each song. According to Visconti, the album contains about 85% live David Bowie. When you consider how complicated it is, that's very brave. It it? is, absolutely. So in order to create a more authentically soulful sound, Bowie brought in musicians from the funk and soul community community, including Luther Vandross very early in his career, Andy Newmark as well, drummer of Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah, it was also Bowie's first time working with Carlos Alomar, leading to a working relationship spanning more than 30 years. Alomar, he'd not heard of Bowie, again, we know this, Mm, mm. Uh, he said that uh, Bowie was the whitest man I've ever seen, translucent white. I mean, when I interviewed Carlos Alomar quite recently, he said the first thing he said to him was, you need to eat something because he looked so terrible, Bowie, mm. you know. In 1987, Bowie recalled how difficult the tour was early on before changing it into the Soul Tour, saying, I was in a bad state of mind to have attempted that. It was pretty exciting, but I was so blocked, so stoned during the entire thing. I'm amazed I lasted with it, even that one trip across America before I finally ditched it. 
So we've just uh, alluded to this, uh, the live recordings. Main man Bowie's management team plan to cull a live album from the July 1974 performances at the Tower Theatre just outside Philadelphia. When the band learned of this, they demanded to be paid a standard recording fee of $5,000 per musician in addition to their normal pay or they would refuse to perform. They were given checks before showtime and the concert recording went ahead as planned. It did. A portrait in flesh, a bootleg of the September the 5th, 1974 show in Los Angeles was released in Australia. Australia, an official version at the set from that night from Los Angeles Universal Amphitheatre, mixed by Tony Visconti in 2016, was first released as Cracked Actor, live Los Angeles 74, a three-album set for Record Store Day in April 2017, and the set was later came out on uh, CD and also digital formats in June. The tour started in June and July of 74, mm. so he had, he had the lineup, and it's a lineup that you see on David Live. Then yeah. he, he, he took the time off, did Young Americans, and then, well, it was Herbie Flowers and Tony Newman which we went through actually uh, in the Tony Newman section Yes, we they did. both jumped ship Herbie Flowers rung up Tony Newman and said I've had enough I'm going home so Tony Newman who by his own admission was off his box he was he decided yeah. to go with him and he did regret that and, and, he, and he also felt bad about it years later mm. so they were replaced by Doug Rouch on yeah. bass and Greg Errico and then there was the Soul and the Philly Dogs tour which was the October and December and so Willie Weeks and Dennis Davis took over from those two guys and that was it really so you know at the start of the Diamond's Dog Tour. Signs of soul music were there. You, you know, you would look at like he was doing Knock on Wood. Yeah, sure. Released as a single. Yeah. And Here Today, Gone Tomorrow, the Ohio Players song. Really, really great. Mm. Well, by the time that they'd hit the Philadelphia Spectrum Arena on the 18th of November, this was a set list. All right. So the set list then, they'd start off with their Memory of a Free Festival. Rebel Rebel. John and Marley Dancing Again. Sorrow. Changes. Young Americans. 1984. So Foot Stomping, which of course turned into fame eventually. Yeah, Rock and Roll With Me. Love Me Do. The Gene Genie. Moon Age Daydream. Can You Hear Me? Somebody Up There Likes Me. Oh, Suffragette City. Rock and Roll Suicide. And for the encore, Future Legend and Diamond Dogs. It's legendary, the fact that he just turned on his heels halfway through that tour. And uh, yeah, you know, he never brought it over here and we never forgave him. We didn't. P is for Elvis Presley. So, uh, yes, uh, Davy Bowie and Elvis Presley shared the birthday the 8th of January. They did. And Bowie was a huge fan of Elvis, as was pretty much everybody who came into the music scene in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, so this is from Interview Magazine. Okay, as you just mentioned, David Bowie and Elvis Presley were born 12 years apart, but they shared the same birthday, 8th of January. Bowie was asked about this confluence of events a lot in his lifetime. Our favourite Elvis Bowie quote is from Interview Magazine. Bowie says, At no point did I ever doubt I would be as near as anybody could be to England's Elvis Presley. Even from eight or nine years old, I thought, well, I'll be the greatest rock star in England. I just made up my mind. That is amazing. So uh, it's been said that Bowie's legendary Ziggy jumpsuits were inspired by Elvis's costumes. Yeah. The story goes that Tony DeFries took Bowie away from Mercury Records to RCA because RCA was the home of the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, and Bowie was going to be the new king of rock and roll. Yeah. So all mapped out and thought about. Yeah, sure. Uh, as a result, Bowie landed himself some great tickets to see Elvis at Madison Square Gardens in New York City in 1972. Yeah, so the details of that night, Elvis's at Madison Square Garden afternoon gig, June the 10th, 1972, uh, wearing the uh, wearing his blue suit and cape and matching it with one of his 1971 stage belts. Elvis performed four sold-out shows over two days at uh, Square Garden. John Lennon was there, George Harrison, Bob Dylan, 
Art Garfunkel and, of course, David Bowie, amongst the music stars spotted at the shows. This is what Bowie says. One of my most exciting trips happened about a year or so later, uh, having performed a gig outside London on a Thursday in June 1972. I shot home to sleep, then caught an early morning flight, getting me to Madison Square Garden about ten minutes after Elvis hit the stage. I had the humiliating experience of walking down the centre aisle to my very good RCA-provided seat while Elvis performed Proud Mary. Great. He carried on. He says, As I was in full Ziggy regalia by this time, brilliant red hair and kabuki platform shoes, I'm sure many of the audience presumed Mary had just arrived. (laughs) Elvis was fantastically fit-looking and his voice was in great shape. At the end, I rushed off to the airport to get the next plane back to the UK as I myself was working on Saturday night. (laughs) That's great. That's just a crazy story. Uh. But yeah, you can imagine I mean, oh, I wonder if like the uh, Elvis's audience were predominantly the really kind of quite straight laced and cracking on at that point. I in imagine time. so by seventy two. Yeah, like uh, we would go and see Johnny Cash. Talked about this before, and, yeah. and there wouldn't be many people who were of the twenties or thirties there as we were at that point mm, in time. Yeah, they were mostly the Blue Rims Brigade. That's right. And you wonder if that would be the same for Elvis as yeah. well. Elvis asked David Bowie to be his producer. Claims country star, U.S. singer Dwight Yoakam. Wow. He said that Bowie revealed the request when the pair discussed their love of Elvis in 1997. So this is from The Guardian. Yeah, he said it would have been one of the most unusual pairings in musical history, but how would it have sounded? According to a new account from an unlikely source, Elvis Presley asked David Bowie to be his producer. Yeah, the claim comes from country star Dwight Yoakam in an interview with US newspaper The Orange County Register. In the article published before a concert in Southern California, the singer was asked about Bowie, with whom he'd met in 1997, and with whom he shared a love of Elvis. Yoakam said Bowie had told him that six months before Elvis's death in August 1977, Presley had phoned him, asking him to produce his next record. So, in Dwight Yoakam's words here, that was based on Elvis having heard Bowie's golden years, and I thought, oh my God, it's a tragedy that he was never able to make that. And he said, I couldn't even imagine 1977 Bowie producing Elvis. It would have been fantastic. It has to be one of the greatest tragedies in pop music history that it didn't happen. One of the biggest missed opportunities. Yeah, so uh, it is strange. Uh, the conjecture here being, why wouldn't he have done it? Uh, yeah. Maybe it would have been one of the few people in the world that would have uh, made Bowie extremely nervous to work with. Very possibly. All right. And we know that Bowie, of course, was a huge Elvis fan. It wasn't just the birthday they shared. Bowie did say it originally offered Golden Years, which appeared on Station to station of course and got to top 10 in the US and UK to Elvis yeah the story goes that he asked Angie right so again he, not the confidence to do it himself he said he asked Angie to go to Elvis's people and ask him and she was too nervous to even wow. do it it is a shame since Bowie's death this is a Guardian reporting here another link with Elvis has been uncovered an Elvis song called Black Star which remained unreleased for decades after being recorded in 1960 was cited as a possible inspiration for Bowie's farewell album mm. so the uh, song's lyrics are every man has a black star, a black star over his shoulder, and when a man sees his black star, he knows his time, his time has come. He would have scanned better if his, his time was over. That's right. Well, I, I'm going to keep out of that. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. 
Shopify.com slash work. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. P is for Pink Floyd. When Sid Barrett passed away, this was David Bowie's tribute to him. He said, I can't tell you how sad I feel. Sid was a major inspiration for me. The few times I saw him perform in London at UFO and the marquee clubs during the 60s will forever be etched in my mind. He was so charismatic and such a startlingly original songwriter. Also, along with Anthony Newley, he was the first guy I'd heard sing pop or rock with a British accent. His impact on my thinking was enormous. A major regret is that I never got to know him. A diamond indeed. That referring to Shine On You yeah, Crazy Diamond. Absolutely. We do know, don't we, that uh, but we did actually meet him very briefly, I think at some point, didn't he, in the mid-60s? Yeah. This is from Classic Rock magazine now. Uh, they report on the May the 29th, 2006, David Bowie performed two songs with David Gilmore during the Pink Floyd guitarist uh, three-night stand at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Turned out to be Bowie's last ever UK live performance. As befitting the Thin White Duke's nonchalant demeanour, however, this cameo was low-key. During the encore, Gilmore casually welcomed Bowie to the stage and the musician took his place at the mic amidst a rapturous stand innovation from the crowd. I remember this happening, actually, because yeah, we, know, we know people who work for Bowie, and a text came through uh, just saying, I'm stood on stage here with Dave Gilmore and, and David Bowie. Wow. And, and I was on air at the time. I was like, oh, man, oh. oh, man. So his presence was admittedly a surprise. At the time, Bowie had been lying low since his 2004 reality tour had been abruptly cancelled due to an emergency angioplasty, and his live appearances were few and far between. Vocally, however, he showed no rust on Arnold Lane, a Sid Barrett composition dating back to 1967. Bowie added desperate-sounding velvety vibrato and a winking mod touch to the psych folk classic. We also featured appropriately retro-sounding keyboards from Richard Wright of Pink Floyd. I don't know if you've seen it, but there is a great video um, of David Bowie in the dressing room uh, on the night, and the door opens... And Dave Gilmore just walks in, so it's not staged at all. Right. And Bowie had been talking about him and just saying how great Floyd were mm. and everything. And uh, Gilmore comes up and puts his arm around him, and Bowie starts going off on one of his flights of fancy. He's going, I was just telling them, you know, uh, that my mum and dad took me to see you when I was a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I love and it. then uh, Gilmore's going, I think you're getting the dates mixed up a little bit there, David. And he's going, No, oh, no, I don't think so. Uh, just typical Bowie. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. P is for pinups. So we have uh, looked at Pink Floyd, P for Pink Floyd. We'll be getting mm. back to them in a moment, won't we, Bob? Mm. Uh, but we can set the scene here, can't we? Bowie had killed off Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Mick Ronson has promised a future as a solo star, part of the main man banner. Yeah. Trevor Boulder agreed to go along for the ride. He did. Woody and Mansi, meanwhile, told Bowie and main man to stick it after the shoddy treatment the Spiders had received in the last months of their existence. Mike Garson was invited back, as we've covered before, on a much higher way 
Wage and his fellow musicians in the band. Ainsley Dunbar had also appeared in Woody's place at the 1980 floor show, was invited along to play drums. Okay, so the seventh studio album by David Bowie is Pinups, containing cover versions of songs released in 1973 on RCA Records. Pinups entered the UK chart on the 3rd of November 1973, coincidentally the same day as Brian Ferry's covers album These Foolish Things, mm. more of which later, mm. and stayed there for 21 weeks, peaking at number one. A version of the Velvet Underground's White Light, White Heat was recorded during the sessions, but it was never released. Bowie donated the backing track to Mick Ronson for his 1975 album Play Don't Worry. So the concept, according to co-producer Ken Scott, the LP was originally conceived as a complete opposite of Bowie's other albums i.e. consisting of all cover songs except for one original composition and mainly aimed at the US market, which, to quote, uh, because he wanted to do songs that weren't well known in the States as they were in England. But eventually the plan was dropped. Pinups was the first of two 1960s nostalgia albums that Bowie had planned to release. The second, which was planned to be called Bowieing Out, would have contained Bowie covering his favourite American artist, but that was never recorded. He also apparently considered making a pin-up sequel. He'd compiled a list of songs he wanted to cover, some of which showed up on his later releases uh, on Heathen 2002 and also Reality in 2003. So in the album booklet, Bowie, writing in his own hand, describes pin-ups thus. These songs are among my favourite memories from the 64-67 period of London. Most of the groups were playing the Ricky Tick, was it with a Y or an I, scene club circuit, Marquee, Eel Pie Island, Live. Uh, some of them are still with us. Pretty Things, Them, Yardbirds, Sid's Pink Floyd, Mojo's Who, Easy Beats, Mersey's, The Kinks. Love on ya. Yeah, great that. So the cover, we've got to mention the cover, haven't we? So the, the woman on the cover with Bowie is supermodel Twiggy in a photograph taken by her then-manager, Justin de Villeneuve, who was shot in Paris for Vogue magazine, but at Bowie's request, it was used for the album instead. Yeah, we'll quickly look at that again later. But OK, the track listing, we will chuckle brothers this, Bob, as we call it. So side one, Rosalind, originally recorded by the Pretty Things, here Comes the Night, notably recorded by Them. Yeah, I Wish You Would, notably recorded by The Yardbirds. See Emily Play, originally by Pink Floyd. Everything's Alright, originally recorded by The Mojos. I Can't Explain, originally The Who. Yeah, we go to side two. Friday On My Mind, originally recorded by The Easy Beats. Sorrow, notably recorded by The Merseys. Don't Bring Me Down, originally recorded by The Pretty Things. Shapes of Things, originally by The Yardbirds. Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, originally recorded by The Who. And Where Have All The Good Times Gone by The King. Yeah, so with the bonus tracks at Growing Up, uh, which is, you know, a Bruce Springsteen tune. Yeah, and also Port of Amsterdam, which Bowie played a lot, did he, by Jacques Brel? He did. The personnel, David Bowie. Mick Ronson. Trevor Boulder. Ainsley Dunbar. Additional personnel, Mike Garson. Ken Fordham on sax. Uh, G.A. McCormack. Hello, Jeff. Backing vocals, Warren Peace. And Ron Wood playing guitar on Growing Up. This from Rolling Stone magazine. Although many of the tracks are excellent, none stands up to the originals. Uh, they say that might be understandable when dealing with a Who. I doubt if they could equal their own Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere Today or Pink Floyd. But even in 1965, any of a thousand bands could have done Everything's Alright as well as the Mojos and even the McCoys did a better version of Sorrow than the Merseys or Bowie. I love Bowie's version of Sorrow. I love Sorrow, it's brilliant. I love this album, actually. Again, we'll have a natter about that shortly, but comparisons with the originals is unnecessary since they will be unfamiliar to most who listen to the album. In that light, many of the cuts do rate somewhat higher. Ronson and co. turning good raving tracks for the Pretty Things Rosalind, the Yardbirds I Wish You Would, and the Kinks Where Have All The Good Times Gone. But, they say, all have been underproduced. The songs were originally conceived as trashy, instant pop fodder, and their simplicity did 
demands a rough edge to give them the punch they need to be effective. That edge is missing since the tracks are mixed down to make way for Bowie's voice and therein lies Pinup's true failure. Wrong. After they, I disagree. Yeah, uh, and it continues. In the past, the vocals in this genre would scream for attention from the very centre of the track's blast of pure noise. But Bowie's vocals float carelessly above the music and his excessively mannered voice is a ridiculously weak mismatch for the material. Wrong! Oh, wrong again, on all counts. Uh, they carry on here. I've always thought Bowie more than merely avant-garde and credit him with the best of intentions. And while Pinups may be a failure, it's also a collection of great songs, most of which are given more than adequate and always loving treatment. Maybe the fairest conclusion to draw is that Bowie can't sing any other way, did the best he could, and the result isn't all that bad. Talk about damn with faint praise, Mark. He's going back and forth between like skirting towards liking it and then hating it, and but whatever, everyone's got their own opinion, haven't they? So this is from the website Pushing Ahead of the Dame, which takes a look at the relationship between Bowie's pinups and Brian Ferry's similar in concept album, These Foolish Things. So weeks before Bowie recorded pinups in France, Brian Ferry cut a covers album in London. This was Ferry's first solo record, made as Roxy Music was entering a less anarchic second edition without Brian Eno. Learning that Bowie was doing his own covers album, Ferry grew agitated, reportedly calling pinups a rip-off. Though some biographies have Ferry considering having his label file an injunction to prevent pinups from being issued before his record, reality was apparently more polite. After some negotiations between managers, Bowie called Ferry purportedly to ask permission to record a Roxy music tune, Ladytron, but also to drop the news about pinups. He'd heard that I was doing this thing, that he was going to do something similar, Ferry told David Buckley. Hello, David. Ferry had to admire what Mick Rock called Bowie's marvellous street instinct. There doesn't seem to be any great self-doubt there, Ferry said, whereas I'm always riddled with doubts and self-criticism and God knows what. Ferry needn't have worried these foolish things is what pinups could have been. This is, of course, uh, from uh, Pushing Head of the Dame. Bolder in ambition and scope, Ferry took on the heavyweights, Elvis, Dylan, Smokey Robinson, the Beatles, the Stones, its arrangements fresher, its execution more consistent. Ferry considered his covers as Dadaist, ready-mades, interpreting each song as a glam Rococo style, singing in what Grill Marcus called his Dracula has risen from the grave voice and backed by female chorus seemingly recruited from an Andy Williams session. Mm, it wasn't cheap parody. Ferry strove to keep each song's dignity intact within its new casing, his It's My Party is Tragic, where Bowie stuck with the point of view of the macho teenage mod. Ferry was Catholic in tone, singing from female and male perspectives, elevating trashy songs and lowering serious ones. He made Sympathy for the Devil a Vegas review number and sang A Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall at a gallop, filling it with grand camp gestures that the song just had to lie down and take, as Robert Forster wrote. So Robert Forster, presumably it's Robert Forster, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and left the Dylan original in flames. The pinups track most worthy of these foolish things and one of the few enduring pieces of music from its sessions was Bowie's version of Sorrow. Like I Wish You Would, it was a second generation interpretation, Bowie covering the Mersey's take on the McCoy's original, with Bowie purpling a romantic revision of a grungy teenage blues. This is an interesting turn. This is from the BBC's website in October 2013. And it involves our mate Nigel Reeves. Oh, hello, Nigel. Hello, mate. A previously unheard radio show was recorded by David Bowie to promote his album Pinups and is to be broadcast for the first time in 40 years. The 15-minute mock radio show, made in 73, will be aired on BBC Radio 6 Music on Wednesday. The show features five tracks from Pinups, a covers album that features Bowie and Twiggy on the sleeve. The recording was discovered by Nigel Reeve, who oversees Bowie's back catalogue. He said it was a jaw-dropping moment when he played it for the first time. The five songs in the show 
Joe, the pretty things, Rosalind, them's Here Comes the Night, the Yardbirds, I Wish You Would, the Mersey's Sorrow and the Who's I Can't Explain are interspersed with Bowie's own musings on the London music scene. The show was produced by Bowie and Ken Scott, who worked with Bowie on his albums from Hunky Dory through to Pinups. So, yeah, he discovered the recording searching through the cupboards, which is yeah. what Nigel's got the key to the cupboard, oh, and we are very, very jealous. He said it was an old tape vault on quarter-inch tape with simply the words radio show written on it, he said. Uh, this is such a rare find. No one knew of its existence, apart from David and Ken. To play it for the first time was quite simply a jaw-dropping moment. I bet. Clips of the show, it goes on to say, will be broadcast across Wednesday on BBC Six Music. will be available to listen to until midnight on Sunday the 27th. Six Music presenter Sean Key and he said it's beyond exciting for Six Music to be showcasing the first ever airing of this historic recording in a year that has been all about the Bowie comeback and just going back to the cover briefly here, yes. this is what Twiggy said about it she said that the shoot was actually for the cover of British Vogue the reason we've got masks is that I had a tan because I've been in LA and he was very pale <laughs> he was always very pale wasn't he of course he was yeah but it is a great cover that you know I'd heard of Pink Floyd and the Kings and the Who and all that kind of stuff but it was my first exposure to them and also to the pretty things it has to be said by listening to Ups. And what's your favourite track on it, Bob? Oh, I did, I did. Rosalind's great. Is you it? Know? Yeah, uh, it, it is great. My my favourite is uh, "Where Have All the Good Times Gone." Right, I just think okay. that's a uh, that's a beauty. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Okay, P is for the pretty things. And we are doing the pretty things again, you know. I mean, we're looking at pinups, and pinups is sandwiched in between two bands who were a, a, a massive influence on Bowie. He was just a huge fan, wasn't he? He was massive fan, as we shall discover. Yeah, so the roots of the band can be traced to the late 1950s when Dick Taylor, uh, Mick Jagger and various school friends would meet after school for a jam uh, session at Taylor's parents' house in Dartford. By 1961, the small group had adopted a blues approach and called themselves Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys. Taylor was by now a in Sidcup Art School, where he and fellow student Keith Richards shared a passion for blues and R&B, and they started to get together and play guitar. As it turned out, Richards was a childhood friend of Mick Jagger, and after the pair renewed their acquaintance, Jagger invited him to join the Blue Boys. By mid-1962, they'd hooked up with guitarist Brian Jones and had renamed themselves the Rolling Stones. The Stones' decision to go professional in late 1962 coincided with Taylor's acceptance at the London Central School of Art. He chose to leave the group to concentrate on his studies i've also heard that he was asked to move over to bass guitar yeah and, and didn't want to do it no. and that's why he formed the pretty things but who knows i don't think he ever regretted it as well either uh, taylor still had the desire to perform and in 1963 he got together with another sidcup art student vocalist and harmonica player phil may and put together a group they brought in may's mate john stacks on bass along with rhythm guitarist brian pendleton and various drummers including pete kitley and viv andrews the name the pretty things was chosen with a degree of sarcasm in homage to bo diddley and his 1955 song Pretty Thing and as a challenge to those who would deride the musician's long-haired appearance. The group started playing at the Dartford Station Hotel before moving on to some college dates in the city. Around this time, Jimmy Duncan spotted them playing at the Royal College of Art and decided to become their co-manager along with Brian Morrison who'd attended the Central School of Art with Taylor. Their new management team found them gigs at the art school circuit and the Railway Station Hotel. During this period, they also met Peter Grant who would later manage them during the 1970s. By May 1970, 
1964, the band started playing the 100 Club in Oxford Street. They did. In early 64, they signed to Fontana Records and the label proposed that they had Viv Prince on drums. Although he was only 19, Prince was already something of a music business veteran, having played with the Dauphin Street Six and Carter Lewis and the Southerners. Earlier on, he'd been an income tax officer in Loughborough. (laughs) (laughs) Something of a changing career there then. For their first single, the group recorded a track written by Jimmy Duncan, Rosalind, back with Big Boss Man, which was released in the June of 1964. Not a great deal of melody, wrote the New Musical Express, but ample enthusiasm, sparkle and drive. Likewise, Record Mirror described it as a Bo Diddley beat, wild vocal, good song, but maybe a little too confused for the charts. Ooh, get you! An appearance on the TV show Ready Steady Go followed on the group's long hair, frilly shirts and animalistic sound sparked sufficient press furore to propel the single into the lower regions of the charts. An American agent who'd seen them on Ready Steady Go offered the group an American tour and an appearance on Ed Sullivan, an opportunity their management failed to take advantage of them. This is all. Early press articles were obsessed with their appearance, particularly long hair, with one newspaper saying... Phil May must have the longest hair on the long-haired current pop scene. Ironically, while the group was being bashed for their fashion sense, they were making plans to open a uh, women's boutique called the Penny Halfpenny near London's Portobello Road. And we know that Bowie uh, obviously set up the organisation and went on TV just decrying the fact that the people were giving them a hard time for having yeah. long hair. So uh, I would suspect that was influenced by Phil May as Certainly. well. But anyway, finding a suitable follow-up to Rosalind, the group found the perfect number written by Johnny D, former lead singer with the Bulldogs. D travelled with the band to soak up the atmosphere. Don't Bring Me Down, Back With We'll Be Together, was issued at the end of October 1964. The single got into the UK top 10 in November and to promote the single, the group embarked on an eight-day Scottish tour followed by TV appearances on Ready Steady Go and Thank Your Lucky Stars. So the pretty things continued through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and 90s and noughties and I even had them in session uh, not long ago and they were just amazing and Dick oh. Taylor back in the lineup, and it was a real honour, a real honour to have them playing for us. So uh, there's no point in going through the whole uh, lifespan of the pretty things. We would be here all day. Suffice to say they are a great band and Phil made one of the great front men, no doubt about it. Yep. So uh, the David Bowie connection here, we know that he covered Rosalind and Don't Bring Me Down on pinups, and that was the first time, well, yeah, I'm mentioned before first time i'd ever heard of the pretty things this is phil may uh, to you robert in oh. 2015 i believe david bowie offered to produce 1974 silk torpedo the follow-up to freeway madness but you were also looking at a deal with peter grant's swan song label was that the deciding factor so that's me being you perverse yeah well nothing like me mark anyway uh, phil says this is nothing like him either it was the fact that the project that jimmy page and robert plant talked about had more integrity he said not from david's point of view but from the point of view that they came to be and decided that they wanted complete control over what came out on the Swan Song label and they wanted the pretty things very much to be a part of it and they signed Maggie Bell as well and Bad Company so it was a good family group and then I asked him uh, when did he first become aware of Bowie's fandom of the pretty things and he said when we started out as art students he would turn up there's a famous story of him asking for my phone number I think I'd gone back to Erith from wherever I was staying back to my mum and dad's he said Oh, your number's changed. We were surrounded by hangers-on or whatever. In the middle of all these people, David asked me what my new number was. Uh, So I said, give us your book. And I took the book off him and he didn't want to give it to me at first. He looked very embarrassed. And when I got to the page where my number was, it had God in capital letters over my phone number. Without saying anything, I crossed out the number and wrote the new number in. Very (laughs) diplomatic. That's very godlike, actually. Uh, David was like a sponge, says Phil May. He really soaked up everything. He wanted to know what guitar strings somebody had used. He was really getting 
setting a foundation for his career, really, and getting as much information as he could. He was a really smart kid. He wasn't like an ordinary fan. He had something unusual about him. And he joined our agency, the Brian Morrison Agency, as Davy Jones and the Lower Third. So we saw him again. Yeah, OK. And I got to a point, I said, hey, you must have been thrilled then when Pinups came out with his covers of Rosalind and Don't Bring Me Down. And it turns out it's got a bittersweet edge to this story, Mark. He said, oh, yeah. Although uh, Brian Morrison, more than me, was thrilled about it because he had the publishing. And then he started laughing for a bit. Uh, what was funny was he rang us up and said, my babies, this is fantastic, but I feel really guilty. And he said, then he went on to explain how he bought the rights to uh, both songs and he owned it all. And he said, tell you what, I want to give you half the royalties. Uh, I said to him, oh, that's very generous. Thanks a lot. So I bet he was rubbing his hands when pinups came out. Yeah, that would, must have been a real earner for a lot of people. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. P is also for Peter and the Wolf. Or, in our case, David Bowie narrates Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf, a classical music album containing Bowie's narration of Prokofiev's 1936 composition, Peter and the Wolf, as well as Benjamin Britten's The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. The music is performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra and conducted by Eugene Ormandy. And the album was released in May 1978 on RCA, on the Red Seal label. Uh, It reached number 136 on the US Pop Albums chart. So Bowie was RCA's third choice to undertake the narration for Peter and the Wolf behind Alec Guinness and Peter Ustinov, who both turned the album down. Uh, Bowie has since said it was a Christmas present for his son, Duncan, who was then seven years old. Stephen DeMorris, reviewing the album in Rolling Stone at the time of its release, describes Bowie's involvement as engaging and benevolent. And he finishes the review by saying Bowie had found his most charming guys since Hunky Dory. I don't even know what that means. No, me neither. We don't really need to go too much further into it, really, than that, just uh, other than to document the fact that he did do Peter and the Wolf, and I think we've done it, Bob. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley, recorded and edited by Howard Nock, with social media graphics by Jason Reed. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Quatermass and the Pit. Queer. Queen. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.